Welcome to Hive Time, a beekeeping podcast for all types of beekeepers, whether you're a backyard beekeeper or a commercial beekeeper. My name is Mike James. I am your host. And today I have Corey Stevens on from Stevens Beeco out of Missouri. He raises uh, queen bees with VSH qualities. And today we talk about kind of his operations, uh, VSH, and where we think potentially the industry is going. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed uh, recording it. So let's jump right into it. Let's I'm do Paul it. Stevens. I've been keeping bees for, I think, around 14 years. This may be the start of my 14th year, something like that. Maybe it's 13 years. But anyway, I run possibly 150 plus colonies southeast Missouri. Um, that's main mainly for breeding purposes or yeah yeah i mean we produce okay. honey as well like if you've got healthy bee colonies you know you're gonna have a honey crop too even though this is kind of a crappy area for honey production i'm on is it really yeah if you get out into the crops and stuff it's a little bit better but where i'm at on the ridge like it could be hit or miss but you know it's good okay. for producing bees which that's my main focus you know like we only run 150 colonies or so but we'll we usually raise 2,000 or better queens each year but whenever i okay. say it's not mated queens you know like i stopped doing that several years ago we so what was i mean i, I dabbled around just a little bit on your guys' site just kind of get a feel for some of the things that you guys do and um you know, that was one of kind of my major questions was why do you, I mean, besides, well, I guess maybe not so the obvious, you know, we're going to have people listening that really kind of don't have any idea how queen bees are bred. And then you've got some that probably are breeding them. So um, I guess I won't refer to it as an obvious question, but why virgin queens versus um, mated ones? And obviously there's some extra time in having a mated definitely it just comes down to labor and cost production costs like i have a day job too i'm corporate transportation for nestle purina so you know it's a pretty sizable company i work from home so you know i've got insurance and all that good stuff in retirement but it came down to time you're basically buying my free time you know because i take a lot of time off to work I'm a workaholic, but <laughs> you know, if you're producing open mated queens, here's the way I, I envision it. We're, we're not in South Georgia. We're not in Florida. So we have a short season, maybe mid April to mid June, sometimes early April to mid June. But you think about, even if you bumped it up to 40 or $50 for a mated queen, which is kind of pushing it, you know, really, how many rounds, if I leave them in a full three weeks, can I do in that time? Versus right, and if I just sell the nucleus colony, we sell our open mated nukes for 225 bucks. So why, you know, why would I go through all that extra labor right. for less money? You know what I mean? It just wasn't making sense. I think that the B prices, packages and nukes ran off and left open mated queens. And I, I looked at it like I was selling the heart out of the watermelon for cheap and that's the best part you know what i mean like, right right and it just stopped well me. i even think because you're selling them around 20 is it 28 bucks for the uh, virgins 
they're 25 if you just get a, a few, but if it's 10 or more, it's 20 bucks, which, you know, we usually throw in freebies too, just in case somebody craps out or something. I don't want to have to pay right. my guarantee live delivery and I don't want to pay next day air to replace one or two queens, you know? So, but right. all of our stock is, is uh, VSH tested. Um, we don't use any treatments on it strictly because that is my main focus. Like you said, is breeding for mite and disease resistance. And if I don't put anything on them, it gets pretty obvious, pretty quick who has it and who doesn't. So yeah, I, I put natural selection up at its, I would say, rightful place to sort the wheat from the chaff. And then whatever I have left, you know, goes through standard, you know, master beekeeper selection of productivity, you know, calm on the comb, good brood, disease resistance, mite resistance. And then I VSH test my favorites and those go into the gene pool. <clears throat> and we, okay. we do instrumentally inseminated breeder queens. So that's another reason I ditched open mated is because I just do cells and virgins or, you know, instrumentally inseminated breeder queens. Okay. So, I mean, honestly, I, being it's VS, VSH, I always have a hard time saying that. Um, I would think that you'd be able to get even more for them, even virgins. Um, Probably, but I, I feel like I was the one bucking the system at first, you know, like everybody. <laughs> well, like, I think most treatment-free VSH people, already, well, maybe not so much VS. Yeah, maybe not VSH. Maybe that's kind of become a little bit more mainstream, yeah. but treatment-free certainly is still bucking the system. And so... Right. Um, you know, you and I had a call yesterday where we kind of briefly talked about things, but, um, you know, it's, you know, I think it's kind of, it's got to kind of go that way. You know, we were talking about, um, that be informed partnership surveys mm -hmm. and how, and granted, like, you know, it's voluntary. So, so right. data could be a little off, right. Um, and, you know, there's whispers that the numbers that are going to be coming out for uh, last last winter are going to be around the 70%. And what I did was I just quickly pulled up uh, their website. If you, anyone could do it, it's beinformed.org. Um, and on the bottom of the page, they have the latest one state by state. So you could hover over them and like, you know, Missouri, for instance, well, Missouri is actually kind of low, uh, 39.2, but Illinois, 63.3. Mm -hmm. Wisconsin 54.6 Minnesota 59.1 Utah had 72 this was all last year right. um, and so I mean we the people that are doing treatment free uh, obviously you me I've got some experience doing it not quite like you are but those first years are your most difficult right as you're sorting out which queens are going to be your champions or what stock, I guess you'd like to kind of start breeding off of grafting off of. Um, and so, so that first year, I could probably say it's probably the worst, right? Like you throw a bunch of random Queens in there. If you're not already pick buying them from like a, someone like yourself, uh, hoping that at least you got one, <laughs> you right. know, that's going to be able to, to treat them. Yeah. And, um, and then, building off of that. And then at that point it becomes all about the drones. Right. Um, but, uh, year two, you know, 60, 70% probably would be accurate. I would imagine. Wouldn't you? 
Yeah, and I mean, it's going to vary between different people. My story is kind of an anomaly because I was treating <clears throat> and I was having poor winter survival, poor production, blatant disease issues, chalk brood, mite issues, parasitic mite syndrome, deformed wing virus, K-wing. I had it all. It was pretty pitiful. And so Petri dish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a nice little sample of everything that could go wrong. You know, <laughs> welcome to beekeeping. And so mm -hmm. I bought breeders from Tom Glenn. I didn't even know how to raise queens yet. Like I totally went off the deep end and put the cart before the horse. I'm not recommending everyone do this, but I bought VSH breeders. And then every time that I saw a trash hive or something that was a total cull, um, I would just replace the queen. And I didn't put anything on them because I wanted to, I'm curious, you know, I'm an entomologist. I wanted to see what, what happened. And to my surprise, within six weeks or so of a successful introduction of those VSH queens, no, no K-wing, no withered wing, no chalk brood, no... That quick, huh? Yeah. So the cycle of the bees. Yep. It takes a while for that queen to kick in. And once that brood nest is predominantly carrying her genetics, you should see it right away if she actually has what it takes, you know, and sometimes they don't. Right. But out of a breeder like that, um, they were super concentrated and they did extremely well because Tom Glenn, uh, a hero of mine, knew what he was doing. So the thing is, is like I went from a more of a miserable survival rate to 10% uh, or less loss annually at the same time that I did treatment. But I did a complete 180 on my genetics. So that was the determining factor. And then after I saw right. how how impactful and you know, because I, I'm from the show me state, I have to see it. You got to show me. I'm not going to believe you just because you said you're a treatment for right. a successful guy. I mean, I saw the proof was in the pudding and then I'm like, well, maybe I don't need to put this stuff in here, you know? And Tom Glenn was the one that kind of inspired me to do that. The guy that was producing breeders because he said, you know, basically he arrived at the conclusion that we had to go to some kind of host resistance rather than chemical treatments. Because he he likes to eat burr comb, which I do too. I'll just shave it out of my hive and you know lift my bale up and eat it. And he was cutting a big piece of burr comb out, and his hive tool stopped on a fluvalinate or an apostan strip, and he wouldn't eat the comb. He's like, "What are we doing?" You know, and that just knocked me over whenever he said that because I'm like, "What are we doing?" And I'm not saying you should. I'm not dogmatic. Most of my friends treat. Some of them don't. You know, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, but I mean, you can go back to an IPM perspective, which as a trained entomologist, that's what they drill into our head, you know, whenever I was going through all that training to work on my master's. And so that, so kind of maybe explain that a little bit. I, so as you were going to school, you felt that the system itself was really drilling in the chemical aspect? no. It, no, that's the, that's the kicker is it doesn't. That, but the thing is, we ignore the foundation piece or the cornerstone. The holy grail of any IPM program is host resistance. That's right. the only thing that can get you off the chemical treadmill to where you're bent over the barrel and you're reliant wholly on, I'm not saying we shouldn't have some reliance on the chemicals. Right. You know, if, if it's things are getting out of hand, but complete reliance on it is unacceptable in my eyes. Because you're vulnerable. Yes. And so, yeah, they, and I would agree. Look that, you know? 
Right. And, and that's kind of what, what set me off really researching and starting that process was to me, it just purely was a crutch for the genes. And, you know, you look at, I mean, I can't think of a real great example. So I'll probably just totally butcher the heck out of this, but I like, I'm a deer hunter and a lot of people are. Um, and you know, you, you think of just not even just the nature evolving around nature, but you know, and granted we're nature, but let's call humans, not nature. Um, you know, the deer, let's say a deer that walks out in the middle of the deer in the middle of the day, you know, it might have the genes that just likes to be out during the day. Right. And that deer is likely to get shot, uh, because a man, and if you look back 150, 200 years ago with people coming to this country, what do we have? We have deer out everywhere during the day, right? And it could be, I'm just speculating that, and this could be just a horrible example, but <laughs> um, it could be that the deer that preferred to be outside during the day got shot. Those genes didn't pass on. And so therefore we don't see deer outside very often anymore. Or they move right? more or they adjust. Yeah, naturally. Right. It's always a give and take with nature. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, th- that aspect could fall into all sorts of different um, different scenarios, right? Like maybe an animal has a taste for a poisonous mushroom. Well, that animal dies. Every single one that has that taste bud that wants to eat that poisonous mushroom and dies is removed from the gene pool. Yep. And I kind of view the bees a bit in the same way that, and then we have man who just continues to prop up, prop up, prop up, prop up. And I'm not saying that people that are chemical treating are, are bad by any means. Right, I'm not yeah. saying that whatsoever. Same. I think there's a time and a place. And I think that for commercial beekeepers, it's a whole different conversation. Yep. Cause my um, livelihood's not based solely on this. Now it's a large chunk right. of it. So I care. But at the same time, like if I lost all my bees, every single one of them, which hasn't happened, I've not treated in over a decade, I've still got more bees than I've ever had, but, you know, I wouldn't starve to death. So I don't blame them for doing that. But that goes right back to my PM protocol and as to where you treat as little as possible, because if you treat Mm -hmm. constantly, what immediately happens? Pest resistance which is what we're hearing about. Yeah, that's a whole other other aspect. Exactly. Because they're putting selection pressure on it. Heavy selection pressure. So the deer that only travel at night populate, whereas this time the the mites that don't get killed by that particular acaricide or miticide are breeding and making mite resistant. So then we have to try to find a new chemical and a new chemical. And and at the other day, we're killing a bug on a bug. There's a very tight window Yep. of efficacy yep there's there's always a trade-off you know and you can kill them but you're also negatively affecting the health of your bee exactly for the reason you just stated is because you're killing a bug on a bug but if you go back right. to that ipm protocol and you actually use something with strong host resistance and then you're sampling to see if you're getting your butt kicked by mites if you're not getting your butt kicked don't do anything about it. You know what I'm saying? If right. you are, or if somebody moves in next to you and you have some ungodly mite load and you quantify it and sample it, you know, take them out. But well, and that was something that, you know, my, 
understanding and practice has been to measure that the mites and determine which ones have a heavier load and and replace the queen but you brought up a good point when we were chatting before that you know it could be that they just robbed a mite loaded hive and just brought them back and you're getting a bit of an inaccurate picture of what's really going on you you nailed it and that's why i do vsh testing because you asked me yesterday i think if i was sampling or what if i was doing alcohol washes predominantly and i said no which most people probably go what <laughs> is yeah, this people are grinding their teeth right now yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly beforehand i still didn't do alcohol washes but i would just watch them and like i said any sign of disease anything i didn't like any sign of they're getting their butts handed to them by mites immediately i, I requeened them that fixed a lot of problems. You're still going to have issues, you know. I mean, might resist. So what? Still get hungry. What is your process for testing the VSH out of your stock? I or do you? I do, do you only do your top stock, or do you do all yeah, of them? No, I only do whoever I'm thinking about keeping. So basically, the okay. the cream of the crop is who I VSH test, and then that's the last hurdle. So uh, natural selection first. You know, I do. I don't do any kind of odd hive design or any kind of different kind of comb size or, you know what I mean? Like small cell or anything. Yep. I just do standardized equipment because I wanted it to be a genetic solution, not a mechanical or a, okay. or a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Standard management. I didn't want it to be management. So I just do, I manage like everyone else. And then I let natural selection have its way. Then I, I, I take out whatever I don't like, you know, like somebody that's hyper aggressive. Like I just found one of those, like they don't straighten up in the next four weeks. They're, they're going to get split and she's going to get whacked right. and I'm going to give them another queen. And so after that, then the best of the best of the best that makes it through all that criteria, then I VSH select those because it's kind of time consuming. It's not as bad as people think, but it is time consuming. Um, well, I would imagine with the natural selection, because you've got pretty much, I mean, unless you do it a different way, I envision you are the entire season, right? Oh, yeah. It's got to be through the season. What doesn't make it through the winter doesn't make it through the winter. Yep. At least one season. A lot of the breeders I'm grafting out of are multi season instrumentally inseminated breeders that's a concentration of my stock the same queen multi-season well i've got several and like every week okay. i alternate who i'm grafting out of because i want to keep that diversity in there too you know i don't want it to get too narrow i want nice yes. looking brood patterns so yeah but i mean one of the ones i grafted off of uh last week she had she was a she's a two-year-old instrumentally inseminated breeder queen she was in a double deep that she had packed out with three honey supers that are ready to harvest already so ma massive big colonies so they need to be productive too because you know there's some bees that'll survive i, I call them like a tom seeley bee because tom mm -hmm. talk about you know these that would stay in a they would stay small they would swarm often and they would stay small yeah. and they survived well, that's worthless in a commercial environment. Right. You know, we want to be able to right. make queens. We want to be able to make splits. We want to be able to pollinate, you know, and maybe people are doing commercial pollination. I personally don't do that, but you want productive bees. You want a good honey crop, you know? So, right. And, and one of the things that um, I, 
Michael Bush had brought up that I really had never thought of. And maybe I'm just a big dummy, but, um, you know, drones and the queen, you know, there's what, however many drones that queen mates with or has been inseminated with Mm -hmm. represents potential different types of workforce genetics within the hive. And so as long as one of those or two of those, you know, a percentage of those eggs that are being fertilized has that VSH quality and, and is a volume that can manage the hive, you know, cause I mean, like if it's only 5%, they probably will not, it's like one sweeper at a baseball stadium, just yeah, not going to get the job feet. done. Exactly. <laughs> right. Good representation. Right. And yeah. so one of the things that I always was thinking, well, it is possible to have like the Tom Seeley type drone be within a productive colony, but it can't represent a massive percentage of the um, uh, drone genetics. Right. But with VSH, I've seen monstrous colonies that are easy to work, not aggressive, nice brood patterns that are 100% VSH. They will allow 0% mite reproduction. So we can have really? our cake and eat it too. That's the thing why some people, I think, think it's an imaginary goal that we're working towards, but I've literally, I've seen it. So it's not imaginary. Is it easy? Well, no. I've even heard, I've even heard people from the University of Minnesota on a podcast, I think about a year ago, mention that, you know, that is the end goal. You know, yes. VSH chemical free is where we have to be. Yep. And um, it's just, yeah, yes, that's probably, but yes, yeah. accurate. Um, but what I find interesting is it's still kind of an afterthought, you know, and it's like, well, we can make this happen a lot quicker yep. if more people got on board with it with a true understanding of how to do it, right? Like, set it and forget it might not be the best way to do it. I'm not saying that it can't be done. I mean, people are doing it that way. I mean, the true, true, true treatment free people, that's what they do. Set it, forget it, let nature do its thing. Uh, But if, right. But if you need um, any kind of production out of them, whether that's Queens, pollination, honey, you name it, you're going to have to manage them to some degree. And um and, the, and I think that there's different ways that you could do that, whether that's chemical splits, yeah. brood breaking through splits, or like what you're explaining, where it's just aggressively going after uh, those, those quality genetics. But, mm-hmm. but you, like, as you were saying, it's not as if you just threw a bunch of bees in the box like I did and just waited for your winners and losers. You went after actually quality queens first or you know, shortly after. Yep. you started and then and then got started in that process and so that kind of helped springboard that at that that uh, effort and i think that commercial beekeepers could possibly do that the question really becomes if you've got one bad hive out of 10 that has a massive mite load what does that do to its neighboring hives yeah i mean you're gonna get you know you'll get some robbing and some drift certainly but I mean, as soon as you find that that's a problem colony, you know, deal with it. Like yep. take a picture off, off with her head. <laughs> yeah, picture out in the grass and split them down. Give them a good brood break, 
and then requeen them with some of your queens from your better stock and then rinse and repeat. But I wanted to elaborate too, because we touched on that I don't do alcohol washes and we touched on that I do VSH instead, but I don't think I picked that apart very good. So yeah, I'd like you to break that down. If, if I'm measuring VSH, they used to call it SMR, suppressed mite reproduction, like super straightforward. Well, then they changed it to VSH. This was after they figured it out in the USDA B lab. They changed it to VSH because they figured out it was a hygienic response. So varroa sensitive hygiene. And they got that because the bees are, no, there's a reproductive mite in here. They'll open up the brood and throw her butt outside. And those young mites can't live on their own yet. So it totally shuts their reproduction down. And if there's a non-reproductive mite in there, they'll just leave her. She, she's not doing anything. They'll just leave it, which is odd. But I'm- so it's as if they understand the mites biology. Yeah, and there's some, it has something to do with pheromones too, like a, a stress pheromones from the brood if they know something's wrong, because they'll throw out high viral load pupa too, because and I, I would like to get into that too in a minute. But I VSH measures the bee's ability to suppress mite reproduction. So if you have like a level four VSH, you could get a mite load. That's if, if they're robbing, you know, you got neighbors that have crappy bees that are ate up with mites and they're bringing all these mites home. That's why I said alcohol wash could be a poor indicator. Could. Oftentimes it's a good indicator, but it's not foolproof because you can have a VSH queen with a higher mite load and you would have culled her. But if you went in there and measured, she's not letting anybody reproduce. So if you checked them in the next spring, the mite load would probably be crazy low or non-existent. But while they're robbing or bringing all that home, their mite load will be higher. That's that's what I wanted to. That's why I don't do mite water alcohol washes. I go straight to the root cause of it all, and I'm measuring right. if they're actually letting the mites reproduce or not. That's what I was wanting to say. Right, which is actually the accurate way to to measure VSH. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So you did you'd mentioned something about a level four. Were you referring to like the mite load, or is there a no. graduated scale for VSH yeah. quality? Yes, exactly. Option B. And if you go on Harbo Bee Company, like if you Google it, John Harbo, he's the USDA ARS bee scientist that discovered VSH and SMR. Oh. Same same thing. He retired, but he sold breeder. He occasionally sells breeders. He's not selling any this year. But if you go on there and click on VSH and then click on measure VSH, it's all listed out. It tells you exactly. Oh, cool. what. And if it seems like it's too much, I made a video whenever I was working on my master's degree for entomology. I made a video because we've been doing it for a couple of years here. I made a video that just it's on my youtube channel it's just how to measure or how to score bees for vsh something like that i'll have to look at the exact title yeah you give me the link and i'll put it on the show notes so people okay. can check it out sounds good and I'll, I'll find it and send it to you if you look at look at youtube and just search for stevens bee co okay then uh scroll through the videos one of them's like selecting i think it says selecting for vsh and honeybees and it's like okay. a 45 minute video. That was my independent research that just basically explains 
you know, how we go about it, you know, how you number everything and keep track of stuff, how you test it, and then how you score it, which is actually what you were saying. And it's either one, which is non-existent, you can't measure it, you know, it's just not there. Two, they're doing a little bit, but they're, you know what I mean? Three is pretty good, but they're letting a few slip through the cracks and four is a complete shutdown. Or like so, uh, some one of one of my friends calls it FSMR, which is fully suppressed mite reproduction. He FSMR, kind of, I think that's also like a. Um, I want to say that's like a, a X-ray screening as well, or something. No, like that. It's another. It's an acronym for something else. I'm, I don't quite recall what it is. I think it's yeah. It's like wall wall scanning and construction FSMR or something like that. That's cool. um, so. So when you're looking for the VSH, you're pulling frames out and mm-hmm. pulling yeah. brood out. You know what? What does that process look yeah. like? And and I'm assuming that's pretty labor intense. It can be. I mean, it can be a little bit intense. Um, really, what you do is you're looking for brood frames where the workers are starting to emerge. That gives the mites every possible chance to reproduce. And you you pull at least 100. A lot of times, 100 pupa will give you a score that you know it's either no way they're getting their butts in like one circle, or do you yeah. just randomly? It doesn't have to okay. be in a circle. It just has to be 100 mature pupa. You know, like if they're white with purple eyes, that they're not quite there yet, and they kind of come apart when you pull them out. You want them to just okay. at least start to get pigmentation, or to be moving around about to come out. And then you pull them okay. out and you're looking for mites and you, you measure or you log, you know, what the hive number was. And then you count how many non-reproductive mites and then you count how many reproductive mites and then you score it off of that. Interesting. But the wow. problem there is, I, I, I got to step my game up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've gone off the deep end, you know, as you can well tell, you know, but I, I put it out there and a lot of people have seen it. And a lot of my friends have started to do it too. And are sending me pictures of them doing BSH assays. So hopefully it catches. But that's on. the beauty of, of uh, kind of our system is we let the people that are good at what they do do. And we buy from them. <laughs> yep. And, and right? let them spread the word. Like I'm an open book. I don't really hide anything that I do. You know, if you got a question, it's just, I just share. Well, I think if your intentions are pure, there, there's no reason to hide by it. I mean, everyone makes mistakes. No one is perfect. Um, yep. And I think, you know, I th- we chatted a little bit about it, how some of these platforms can seem very canned, right? And for me, I get a bit turned off on that because, you know, the vulnerability sh- to me shows that it's likely a little bit more truthful, you know, Absolutely. Um, and, and, and can help people understand, you know, hey, they've made mistakes to get to where they're at. I mean, it's, I mean, a lot. entrepreneur, <laughs> uh, right. In entrepreneur after entrepreneur, I mean, the famous quote is Thomas Edison, right? I found, I don't remember the number, 5,000 ways not to, how not to make a light bulb, you know, (laughs) right. You have to do that. It's the process of learning. It's the process of growth without failure. You are not growing. It's literally that simple. And with that, I'm going to take a quick little pause here and do an advertisement for myself. 
just take this one quick second and hit that subscribe button, um, a comment, leave a review. It really helps the growth of the show. So just take a few moments to do that and I would be ever so grateful. Now back to the show. Yeah. Uh, it just, if you're failing, it says you're trying. Exactly. And if you're not, you're not trying. <laughs> and the thing is too, is if you're open and you share with other people, your successes and failures, the same thing happens. And then they'll show you things that you didn't see because you were blind to it. If you're not too arrogant to hear, and then you're right. better as a result of it. You know what right. I mean? I was sharing right. with there. Is, I had uh, some visitors this last weekend that I was, we were grafting Queens and pulling Queens and stuff. And, and I was talking about teaching a queen rearing course. And this one person was like, yeah, the, you know, the, the bottom of these Jay-Z BZ cups, the pin is oval shaped. And I was like, the pin is oval shaped. I've got yeah. Jay-Z BZ cups. What do you, you know how they have it? Oh yes. On the bottom that goes into the frame. Right. Well, if you'd rotate, That's, it oh. goes in easy. I had no have, idea. And a person who had never grafted is telling the master, if I may use that term, because I'd mastered queen rearing, something that they'd shoved thousands of and probably splitting some bars and never noticed it. I've but never noticed that. I didn't either. I'm, I'm always sitting there dripping wax down that little channel. I used and to. And then yeah. sticking them to them. Yeah. I don't, I'll have to go take a look. Yeah. You just taught me something. <laughs> I mean, if you just give it a quarter turn, it'll go in. And then if it's a still a little loosey-goosey, then just give it a little bit of a turn and it's, you're good. Which makes sense because I remember the very first time I unpacked one of those, I went like, this thing's kind of a bit of a garbage. It doesn't stay in there very well. Exactly. And some of those bars really suck. So some well, of wood right like there's yeah, all sorts some of, of the, growth some and of the wood ones are actually good but some of the wood ones suck like if they're straight they just split apart but like man lake for a while got smart and they made the bottom part thicker and yep. then where it sticks in the slots that's thinner and it's way harder to split them so not all wood bars and i are think thick. that's the one that i have is the thick straight. wooden one i don't remember oh, where okay. i bought it but yeah, the ones I've got, I think, are man like maybe, or they came from Kelly Bees. Maybe some of them did. I've got a kind of a hodgepodge, but yeah, all the straight okay. ones were in the trash. But anyway, yeah, it's if you not to drag that out too far, but if you're open and you share, you know, and you you use your ears too, like you'll be better off because people will share stuff that you didn't notice, and you know, you should right. have maybe, but <laughs> right. So in your process of like you know, the first couple years, I mean, was there anything that really stood out that just kind of was that aha moment for you? Um, queen rearing. Like whenever, you, you know, when Thanos like gets the gloves with all the jewels on it and he like rules the world. Down <laughs> yeah. Like once I got queen rearing, I was like, ah, I, I can do anything now. When anyway. you pulled your first frame out <laughs> with the little peanuts hanging on it. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then that's what changed it from, because it was expensive hobby for a while. My wife, she's kind of the accountant type, you know, she was getting real sick of me blowing money on bees because I was obsessed and I wasn't even making honey. You know, I was just having a great time, I guess. Or I don't know what I was doing. I wasn't being productive. But once I learned queen rearing, it switched from a money 
sucker to one that was actually put making money. Kind I guess. Of a side hustle. Yeah, it was. It became a side hustle, and then I get to take her on vacation and stuff, and then she's more receptive to my hobby. So, yeah, it worked. Well, out. I mean, two thousand two thousand is is not a small number. No, um, it's not. It's kind of a grind because we, we I graft every Monday, like I take off from my day job every uh, week. Yeah, I, I every weekend I've got queens emerging, a couple hundred at least. You know, like I started uh, off, I was I, it was over three hundred, but not quite four hundred every week like through april and then i'm about done because it seems like the swarming impulse is starting to knock off a bit and i'm getting a little tired because i keep a weekly instrumental insemination routine too after i have weekly queens every saturday and then i ship them every monday or tuesday and then like the following week after they're you know nine days of age or so then they get artificially inseminated so then i ship breeders that aren't yet laying yet that are freshly inseminated too and it all so are you using drone sperm from your operation or are you getting yeah. it from somewhere? You no, know? it's all like all graft out of all my breeders that made it through winter or the two-year-old plus breeders. I'll rotate those every week and then we'll open made a ton of them and I'll go back and test all those colonies after they've been through mother nature's, you know, gauntlet and the ones that are that test very high for VSH. Those are the ones I catch drones out of. Okay. Because they have no father. You know what I mean? They're a recombinated right. set of that queen's DNA. And if she's an F1 or a first generation queen, then, and that colony is VSH, those drones are 100% VSH. And so I'll so do you, that the whole yard. Okay. Um, can you explain like the F1, F2 process yeah. in it's, identifying queens? Yeah, it's... It, uh, it's basically like F1 is first generation, F2 is second generation, F3. So if you graft it out of a breeder queen and you get a daughter, that's an F1. If you graft out of that daughter, her daughter's an F2. If you graft out of that, you know, F3. And it, there's a certain name for it. I don't know what it is. There's a specific Neither name. Do I. It, the, I, I, I've just noticed F, F1, F2 in like chicken breeds as well as... Yeah. Um, yeah. As it well as bees. I, I don't know if it's in all aspects of like it is breeding. It is whether okay. it's plant, like one of my buddies is a soybean breeder. Exact same thing. F one, F two, F three. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So interesting. I only graft out of instrumentally inseminated breeders, so I know who mom and dad are. But all the drones I catch are out of some of them. I catch out of breeders too, but a lot of them I catch out of F ones, and I clip them and mark them so I know how old they are. And, and I know you, for sure you, where they came from. Well, and you were explaining that process of how you're putting uh, an excluder-like frame in front of those hives, yeah. preventing the drones from getting in. And so you end up with a congregation of right. drones waiting to go home. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're trying to get back home from the singles bar and the door is locked. And then I go <laughs> around and I go around and bag them all quite up. literally <laughs> right exactly yeah and so whenever they're trying to get back in they can't th get through that excluder but the workers can go through it and then i just it's either me or my kids help catch or my wife will help catch start picking them up yeah and then i'll immediately take them it's usually like friday night which that's why you don't want to be a bee breeder because it 1 a.m. on Saturday morning, you're still extracting drone semen, you know, instead of sleeping or doing fun stuff. 
because yeah. I have to have that every week because like Sunday afternoon or Monday, sometimes Monday midday, I'll inseminate queens that'll ship later that day or ship the following day. So, so what percentage of your queens that you're shipping are virgins versus um, inseminated queens? And then do you sell any open mated queens? No, that's what I was mentioning earlier to where I can't, it's not worth it to me. Like I just hoard all my open mated queens. And oh, okay. I, I sell a few nucleus colonies, like open mated nukes, but I've yeah, really cut that down too. But the proportion of, of uh, instrumentally inseminated versus virgin that I sell, like I only sell a batch of, you know, seven to 12 instrumentally inseminated queens a week. And then, you know, sometimes hundreds of virgins that week. So, you know, the instrumentally inseminated is few just because there's so much labor in it. I can't do that many, you know, not right. with a job. Well, one of the things that I've kind of pondered doing and is, you know, we're cold. I'm up in Wisconsin currently and, you know, we're cold climate. I'd probably consider you guys cold climate, to be honest. Yeah, we see some. Um, yeah. And I always thought that there would be a premium product in selling overwintered nucleus colonies yeah. to where you're using them to split you know i don't know yeah. what, maybe august split them in august mm -hmm. somehow you know bulk them together where you're, whether you're throwing them in a insulated box or something just to keep them a little warmer during winter and then selling them first thing in the springtime with packages because we all know like packages obviously are coming off almonds people are splitting them they're just throwing queens and packages and they're getting shipped out and then, you know, what a month later, people are starting to do their splits. And then that's when nukes become available. And once again, they're typically just bought queens, just tossed into a nucleus. Yeah. Right. Or, um, you know, in some cases, people are using the queens from, from a season ago. But, you know, longevity in queens is in question nowadays. And especially if you're not after a quality queen, you know, that queen could be dying anytime soon. Um, yeah. So I always thought that it would be an interesting business model for someone to try to, you know, make up 500 splits in, in you know, July, August time period. Well, maybe a little later than August, September, and then uh, overwinter them and then sell the ones that made it for 300 bucks. You know, it's, yeah. you've already got proven winner there. Yeah. I was going to say, you'd want to, you'd want to bump it up because you're having to maintain them and it's kind of a premium thing. There's always a trade-off. Right. The only thing I don't like about it, A, is those are my powerhouses. Like whenever those things right. come out of, they're ready to go. So whatever I had that crapped out, you know what I mean? Like this year, I think we had maybe, maybe a 20% loss. Well, those are the ones I want to go throw in all my double deep stuff because they got honey supers done already right now. So that's the first thing yeah. I don't like about it. So you Three boxes, you said, right? Yeah, and I don't make that much around Which here. Is great. You're lucky if you get two supers off of a of a good double. So what, 150 pounds of honey on one already for the yeah. season? That's pretty darn good. Yeah, and they'll do more late summer, you know, when soybeans and stuff start blooming. But the, the other downside to it is just you'd want to warn people if they're a new beekeeper. It's like they want to swarm. Because they're so, I mean, even if you made them, you know, some people are like, if it's after the summer solstice, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. You know, after yeah, they go yeah. through yeah. winter, they want to throw swarms like freaking crazy. But yeah, 
which is okay because they're rocking and rolling so much if you know what you're doing. But if you're a new beekeeper, you kind of get thrown to the wolves, you know, and you're already managing swarming. So it's a trade off. I would think though, if you're taking a five frame, throwing it in, even if you're just running one, one, um, brood box, you know, you're, you probably buy yourself a month and a half, two months before you need to really probably. Yeah. Depending, you know, obviously they're going to have their resources in there and probably three frames full of brood at that point in time. Right. Well, like you said, if you sold it for more like 300 versus if you're not trying to match packages and nukes coming out of the south if you put a premium on it it would probably be worth it but that's the thing is you know like those are powerhouses so you're selling well and i think that you got to tell that story though i mean yeah Yeah. there's so much money in b packages that part of me and i'm not a conspiracy theory minded person at all very logic based but sometimes i question whether or not the people selling bees and I, I sell bees myself. So I'll yeah. just leave that on the table. Um, if they almost don't mind the fact that they're dying every year, because it's a guaranteed revenue stream, right? And bees are where a lot of the money is. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, they're, they're selling ha- you know, a quarter of their hive and a queen that they might've, you know, let's say paid 30 bucks for and a, plastic bee bus for five bucks for a hundred dollars and it ends up making it to the consumer anywhere from 130 to 190 bucks yeah it was yeah. a lot of money to be made there and so uh i think though if you educate the consumer and say if you buy the bees and you manage uh, their swarming tendencies or their potential swarming tendencies you're not going to buy bees next year so that 300 dollars is really a cheap investment yeah exactly or if they try to swarm make two beehives out of it right then you might have two beehives and sell your nuke right exactly going like that and i don't i have repeat customers but i don't think it's because their bees are dying i think it's because they're having really good luck with it and they want more queens that are going to be able to well if they had bad luck i would imagine that they wouldn't be buying from you from you again exactly saying (laughs) that they're vsh right like oh this vsh queen keeps dying on me i'll just keep buying from them (laughs) exactly and i mean you know bees bees have problems like the most mite resistant bees you've got will totally starve to death if you have a crappy fall bloom and you didn't feed them and you know what i mean so right you're gonna still have loss but you shouldn't have 60 70 percent loss you know if you're paying attention and you're using good stock it should be a lot more manageable to where it's actually sustainable right and this year i had um quite a few make it through winter and because we had that weird, I don't know if down there you guys experienced it, but it was like, it got nice and warm. It felt like spring was coming and then winter came back for a month. And when I went out and checked the bees, they were doing just fine, flying good. When that first thing is spring and I should have fed them, I failed. Uh, But what happened is they just, they lost, uh, they didn't have any more food. By the time I went back here a month or so ago, the ones that I thought made it through winter were dead. Yeah. And I had some that either, most of mine, which I did put some syrup on it. I think I squeaked them through, but I put syrup on it because I pulled the frames that should have been full of honey still. And I was empty. like, oh my gosh, it was all brewed. And then it was like, there was nothing. Oh. 
I mean, there was really stores. So whatever they were bringing in, they were just on fumes. And so I hit them. With they were them. living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, That's what, what they, they were doing. doing. <laughs> Any variation in weather, they would <laughs> because there was too much brew. There right. Feed. Yeah, and I think that's what happened to several of mine. I, there was two of them that I opened up where there was must have been two inches of dead bees in the bottom, ones that were flying. So they must have just starved like that. Yeah, it happens. There's nothing to rob from. Right. right. And whenever they're raising brood, like from, from what I've, you know, I know that whenever they're not raising brood, they're running, what, 60 some odd degrees in a cluster. And then whenever they're raising brood, it's 90 something. So basically, if you have your heat off, and then you turn it on 90 degrees. How much, what's your electricity right. bill going to do? That's what they're, that, that's honey. Right. Then is the electricity or their. Yeah. And they're doing it through metabolizing that sugar, you know, and, and I think that that gets a bit lost too. I mean, you know, I've got hyperhive, which is an insulated beehive and, you know, there's some really scientifically backed evidence that says insulated beehive is the way to go. It reduces their, their um, need to cover the brood. And so they're able to do kind of more activities versus, you know, just stuck trying to keep the brood warm or cool them for that matter in the summertime, Both as ways. well as gives them the ability. I mean, how many times, I mean, I run uninsulated hives as well as insulated hives. And I don't know how many times I've opened up a dead out where they're obviously starved, right? Where all the butts are sticking out of cells and just two inches away, is an entire corner of honey. Yeah, but they just can't get to it because they're too cold. Yeah. You know, whereas if they were insulated, they might be able to scoot over a bit, you know, and actually. Right. And that's kind of where it's like, it gets this really weird dynamic um, in information. Like we talked about it in our call yesterday. I look at it like you've got freeways, you've got side streets, and then you've got, you know, your neighborhood streets. And, and and each of these highways are is might be treatment free or, or chemical or a, um, a top bar hive or a Langstroth hive, and without explaining how you got to your you know your city street in front of your house, no one really has any idea what how that information might correlate with a problem. Right. And so, like saying, "Oh, my bees starved." Well why you know there is it because they couldn't get to it is it because there wasn't enough there was it because maybe they were too good of bees and there was such a big booming population you know there's all these crazy variables yeah and so there's not a straight answer for every single problem and and that's where i think it's very interesting and sometimes turning to the internet almost makes it worse all the time and I know some people probably get mad at me because I answer questions with questions a lot of times. Right. Because you it's, have to. it's complex. Like you, you have I know, to. I know they want a black and white answer, but welcome yeah. to the world of gray. Right. You know, which right. is why I love it. Depends. Like, it depends. You clearly don't know what you're talking about. Right. Yeah, story. where the internet should be telling you it depends, they're giving you a black and white answer. <laughs> but something well, tells me a website that says it depends won't get much traffic. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think it's to, I think it's it's really effective on the people that are going to go places with bees because it get, it wakes them up to all the variables that they need to be thinking about. It's not black and yeah. white. No, it depends on this or depends right. on this or depends on yeah. You know, and it's like, oh man, well, 
I love that. Otherwise, I would get bored with it. I love the variables and complex problem solving. You know, otherwise, I would. Right. <laughs> yeah. I learn new stuff all the time. Oh, I wanted to. There was one thing I wanted to circle back on too. We were talking about VSH and testing for VSH and stuff. And and in that video that I'll I'll give to you to put in the link below, it basically says like what 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 can you expect if you're using VSHBs, actual VSHBs, not just what somebody said was VSHBs, because that's a problem too, unfortunately. But that's where testing comes in too. You can see for yourself. But the first thing I noticed was a complete lack of deformed wing virus, at least expressed. I knew it was probably still there but it just evaporated. I, I used to see it all the time. And then whenever I would replace those queens with VSH queens in six weeks or so, it was completely gone. And that wasn't with a treatment and a requeen, which isn't a bad idea. You know, it's not right. a bad position. Just I give just them a, a clean slate to start with. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I just didn't want to do that because I wanted to see what the actual genetics did exclusively. So and then it was kind of cool too, because Randy Oliver later was asking for samples because he wanted to sample them for deformed wing virus. And he specifically asked for some treatment-free apiaries, probably so they could go, oh my God, look how horrible they look. Yeah, he hates treatment-free people. <laughs> yeah, but instead- Randy, I love you, but you hate treatment-free people. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, my results came back Deform wing virus A below quantifiable levels. Deform wing virus B below quantifiable levels. Deform wing virus C no none. Really? And those nasty untreated bees. But it depends. <laughs> it totally <laughs> depends. Are you running just XYZ bees or package bees, or are you running something that is specifically selected? to have right. strong host resistance that we now know how to measure. And that was the factor. And some people, I think too, like they'll see bees that are too hygienic. You've heard that, like, oh my God. I am not, no. Hygienic. I've heard it on forums, which that's the internet, you know, but- uh, Forums are like, I swear, the internet's nasty brother. It is, or the dark underbelly. Yeah. Right. But I- I see phenomenal brood patterns because I've got diverse stock too. But so that's kind of a misnomer. It's, it's misinformation. They used to see that in the, in the early days of the VSH breeding project at the USDA bee lab, but they just requeened the psychos and it was a non- So they were mean. No, they were like psychotic about ejecting brood, like overly. Oh, like you just end up they, with brood piled out in front. Yeah, their population wouldn't even build because they're <laughs> throwing right. all their babies. Shocking out, out the babies. Right. <laughs> yeah. Huh. So they, they probably had Which some... might have almost, which which could have even been like over-amplified VSH quality. But that's the thing, though, is you can get beautiful brood patterns and have a level four. So something was wrong there. Something was Oh, gotcha. Beautiful. Okay. That's that's why I'm saying I have that object of comparison where I can see these phenomenal looking brood patterns, which you'll see some open face brood and recapped stuff, you know, where they opened it up and we're like, eh, okay, it's okay. So where you'll be just kind of spotty at yeah. times. 
Okay. Yeah, if your mite levels climb or you have problems, the brood might look spotty because they're throwing everything out or throwing a lot of stuff out. But under normal circumstances, the brood patterns should look absolutely normal. You just may see some that's uncapped. Like, have you ever seen it where some people call it bald brood? You can see their the face of the brood. I'll show you. You can look at my website and see. Like through the capping? Yeah, there's no cap. Like they. Oh, yes, I have seen that. Yep. See a purple eyed. You know what I mean? You see the pupae in there. Well, you'll see that. So that's. It's an. Is that part of the process then of the VSH quality? Is that they they just haven't thrown that V out yet? Exactly. Or they opened it up because they were suspicious and it passed inspection. So they sometimes they'll recap it. Uncap recap is massive with VSHBs. Sometimes they'll recap it and sometimes they just get lazy or something and just leave it. It'll still emerge. There's nothing wrong with the pupa. You can just see it. Face <laughs> a look at you. Well, I always, I always was kind of curious because yeah. is it, what's the age? It's an Apis Serana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Asian bee. You know, they they have a totally different capping system to where it's thicker yeah. and there's like a little tiny vent hole in the yeah, middle. The pin hole on it is weird. Yeah. And so I always was and they're, you know, and they they'd have they've had no problems with mites now or with Varroa. Yeah. yeah. Um there are very few. It's more of an annoyance than a death sentence. And I think if we like really adopt disease resistant or mite resistant stocks that's what it'll go to. They're an annoyance, not a death. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually. I mean, I have no doubt that eventually we will get there. It's just, it's a big ship and she takes a while to turn. You're exactly right. Well said, but if more people are, see, I think like how, how we'll get there isn't like Corey coming to save the world with his glove on you know of truth well i'm gonna order some of your bees so i'm gonna solve it around here (laughs) but i would say don't just buy them like select for them too so like come up with your own wisconsin blend or somebody on the east coast needs to have their own little and if everybody has their own little vsh tested stock we'll never have diversity problems because if it's all coming from one breeder you know what I'm you got problems. genetic line. Yeah, you want to outcross it locally and then test it and then graft from the ones that do really well in your area. And if everybody right. did that, we would have a bazillion different VSH lines to select from. Well, let's use Mike's. It's more of a northern adapted. It loves that cold weather. You know what I mean? And can hang. Yeah. And they're super conservative on stores. You know, let's cross it with this because we want to make something. You know what I mean? And then right. you got well, and and, and and I think it's encouraging because you've got the USDA just I think it's yeah USDA just came out with uh, what's that bee breed that they just uh, named? Halo. What is it? Halo. 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 Yeah, it's something like that, and it's primarily commercial based, right? To where they can survive, they or not survive, they thrive and survive in exactly. southern climates, and then pretty much making that loop, right, from California down to Texas, and then up to the cranberries, pretty much, right? Like, yep. which is all sorts of um, temperature temperaments, and so I think it's good. To me, it's like the private sector always solves the problems way faster than the government does. Right. Because you got to make money. Like, and so money's the motivator to get, yeah, the money's the motivator to get it moving and get it going. 
where the government, we just keep giving them money for them right. to just kind of tool and test, which has its right, which has its own right. benefits because yeah. they're it's able to maybe benefits. spend some time to figure something out where someone that's going to make money won't and can't, yeah. right? Or short term. Exactly. But that's where we we want to see what works. If it doesn't work or if it's not functional, not interested. On to the next one, right. Move on. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Where, you know, like a USDA of the world, it's, well, why didn't it work? What are the other aspects that didn't? We're like, nope, squish that sucker. Let's get a new yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. We're, 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 we're after the finish line. We don't care how pretty yeah. it looks. <laughs> right. And I spoke with Garrett Dodds. He's a tech at the USDA ARSB lab, which I haven't published that one yet on my YouTube channel. I'm waiting on his approval for, you know, our conversation. But he talks a little bit about those helo bees, and they're basically doing commercial stock. They're using instrumental insemination, and they're using some type of VSH assay. Like, I mean, there's different host resistance mechanisms. There's, you know, allo grooming or auto grooming, like Purdue mite biters or whatever. They're allo groomers. There's general where they're taking it off the bee itself. Yeah, they're as like, they come in. Yeah. like that's pretty cool. But VSH. That's where it's at, man. It's like they go on the all. Well, it's the root cause, right? Like exactly. Um, we don't that's love where they're breeding. Right. There's no problem, you know. Right. Yeah, so, just shooing yeah. them off to the front porch and allowing them to right. crawl back in doesn't necessarily <laughs> solve the real problem. Right. Or maybe, maybe after we get VSH concentrated, maybe we could add aloe grooming too to a certain percent. Right. And then they're not safe anywhere. Right. They're not safe in the brood, and they're not safe right. in the phoretic phase. Well, and that goes right down to that. You know, segments of gene pool from the drones. You know, if we've got twenty percent that are true VSH with the cells, you're 20% grooming, the rest are nice as can be and honey collecting fools or nectar collecting fools. Exactly. And then the mice. So what, you know? right. So do you have a, a specific um, bee breed that you are, are, are um, using? I mean, is it a, is it I a mean, bit of a mutt? Is it Carnolian, Italian? A mutt. It's more predominantly Italian, but I would say like, if you have an, a vision of a stereotypical Italian, you should probably throw it out the window. You know, like most Italians historically were the worst for mite resistant. Well, these are better than most everything else. You know, they're testing extremely high. Um, you know, a lot of Italians will eat themselves out of house and home. Well, this isn't a great honey production area, and I don't feed a ton. So those weeded themselves out of the gene pool. So I would say this is a more conservative Italian. But on the okay. same token, I've got some breeders that throw some level of dark queens, too. Like not straight. I love the dark time. queens. Well, yeah. you'll probably want some out of a couple of my of my other breeders. Whenever I was crossing with Harbo stock to get my VSH scores up where they needed to be, um, he doesn't select for color. He could care less what color they are, as long yeah. as they seek out and destroy mites. Yeah. Right. You know? So whenever I made some crosses with his, I got some darker stock, and and light stock too but that's where some of the darker stuff came from i've got some that throw kind of a tiger stripe looking queen or there's an occasional black queen that comes out too so i have um, not had until this year um the cardovans have you seen one of those i've got i've got oh one they're of just I've been beautiful out of throws about 
five to seven percent Cordovan daughters. They're like they look like they're the easiest queen to spot in the hive. I mean, they almost glow. They're almost fluorescent. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I I, well, I was helping a guy pack um, down in Utah uh, about a month or so ago, and he's like, and I was just there to to ultimately kind of transport, and so he's like, and I had my suit on and he's like, will you help me? We're behind. I'm like, sure. And so he's like, we're just need to queen check these nukes. And so I'm pulling the nukes up and I thought my eyes were just playing tricks with me. And I'm like, there's like one out of every five of these bees are like glowing. And I'm like, there's something. And I felt stupid. So I was like, I'm not going to say anything. I, my eyes just, I must just be tired. And then the next day he's like, Oh, look at these cards. And I had no idea any of them were Cardovan. And he's like, look at this Cardovan queen. And I'm like, holy cow, they glow. And he goes, yeah. And then look at her offspring. And they're like a red bee, right? Like, and I'm like, they kind of look like they're glowing. (laughs) You know what? And I'm like, last night I was going to say something to you, but I thought you guys would think I was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You know how that works? You know how? Kind of. It's one gene subset, right? Yeah. You know, where everything's black on a normal queen, like her thorax or face or legs, you know, that's black. Yeah. There. That Cordovan gene's a recessive gene. It mutes that. So it like turns it off. And so everywhere that's normally black is like a burnt orange and the drone. Yeah. Gorgeous. I mean, they look like really, I've not seen a drone. Yeah. They look like a little sun. I call them sunburst. I mean, it's, it's just a Cordovan. Really? whenever I'm catching out of my breeders, because I've got a percentage of those that they'll throw Cordovan drones, not hundred percent, but they stick out so much. They're just orange. They're really pretty. Yeah. But cool. Interesting stuff. Well, once you get the VSH, then we can start selecting for all the pretty genes. <laughs> exactly. Right. Get the, mites, right? get the mites first and foremost, and then we'll, we'll play. You're with pretty. Them. Pretty's next. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go for pretty later. Yeah. But the thing is, is the ones that are throwing Cordovans, they're highly VSH. They so, are. Yep. Hmm. So it's just like, well, it's just genetics. You got to tinker and select and keep that selection pressure on it. And then you can add or subtract whatever you want, you know? Right. Which at the end of the day, it really seems very simple. It is. It's not that difficult. That's and that's the thing with VSH. Not not not, and I'm not saying what you do is simple. I'm saying just like breeding, getting the genes to a point where we need them to is somewhat of a simple process. It's throw away what doesn't work and keep what does, and then just keep throwing away, keep separating wheat from chaff, and then rinse and repeat over and over and over. Yep. Yep. And I think that it's it's a safe bet to use. uh, You know. surveys kind of like the be informed to kind of get a, a sense of like as a whole as what we are doing as beekeeping and i could say as a whole right now we're treating bees it's yeah. not working it's, it's not, not working. working and it's and at it, least the way we're doing it it's like not working this way eventually it's going to go right yes because after then that, we have real sense. problems then we got real problems so before we get to that point let's let's mitigate let's let's select for some host resistance and get a little right. of that in there and then whenever amitraz crashes and is completely worthless like fluvalinate and some of the old stuff we used it's not a deal breaker you know it's right. uh, we'll, we'll probably want to look for something else for worst case scenarios but it's not going to end us you know 
And they were yeah. talking about even oxalic being ineffective. You know, which certain- that to me is scary, but it, it yeah. makes sense. I mean, yeah. Well, Cameron Jack spoke at our state meeting. Uh, I'm past president for Missouri State Beekeepers, and he was at our state meeting out of University of Florida. He basically said the approved dosage is about 25% of what the effective dose needs to be. <laughs> really? Yeah. So that's the worst, too. And it makes me wonder, did they do that with Amitraz? Because you, you want it to, you don't want it to be t- too hot, but you definitely don't want it to be too weak because that accelerates mite resistance. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? If you don't get a good kill, if you're just giving them sublethal doses of stuff, that's like spraying nitrous to the finish line on making mite resistant, or sorry, a caricide resistant mites, which is a nightmare. Well, I mean, you could use antibiotics in humans as a prime example of that, right? Same concept. Yeah, but throw antibiotics at a kid for their entire young adulthood or their entire youth. and they're useless to them in as adults exactly exactly same concept it works that way any in almost any aspect of nature you know any kind of uh, pesticides and beans or corn you know same thing like even the best stuff we come out with after a few years nature starts weaving its way around it you know so that gentleman was saying that people are using it at a higher level than the label or yeah that we are really both and that the label oh, the, the amount well here's the thing it actually isn't as bad as they thought because the approved amount is too light it's not effective that's the approved amount so and and don't quote me on this i'll have to go back and look and i think oh, i won't well, I, think, I may even cut that <laughs> No, 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 leave it in there because then people will dig and go see what exactly is. Because I think it is they approved one gram per colony, but in a a totally effective dose is like four grams per colony. Which is actually breaking the law. It is. But if you abide by the law, that's you're gonna doom the bees. You were wrong either way. You know what I mean? So it's like that's not what do you good. do and that's what i'm worried about amateurs is the approved dose too light because that'll accelerate mites resistance to amateurs it needs to be a, a it's, it's somewhere in the middle you don't want it right. super like over the top hot and you don't want it too light you want to get a good kill you know to where you're not leaving many mites left because those are the ones that are breeding and create resistance it's just a matter of well, maybe i'll do a little digging and see if i can't maybe add some posts to the notes as well yeah just yeah, to, for someone good. to start their research yeah. if they choose to yeah but i mean because no. as 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 anyone trying to educate themselves don't believe everything we're just telling you exactly like, if you got a question do yeah. some research and, and even the people that are doing cool things i mean don't question them you know annoying just to question them yeah exactly yeah, we're just trying to take them out or discredit them but i mean poke them a little bit because you know they don't know it all i don't know it all you know we don't have it all figured out yet and if we don't ask questions then how are we supposed to learn or if we don't right. i mean even for the person providing the information you know it's like yeah. oh there's a bit of a hole in my understanding and maybe it's maybe i need to fill it you know yeah, exactly and then we'll all be better as a result it's like back whenever i started right. you know like people the word on the street was you can't keep bees without treatment and then part of me yeah. is like i don't buy it 
Well, it's funny because like I, you know, I started this podcast as like wanting a very, very general view of beekeeping, right? And it's probably a bit of my own curiosity, but I keep gravitating towards treatment-free people. And I, I always kick myself. And, and a gentleman that I actually um, have been chatting with a little bit um, electronically to be a guest was like, well, I'm not treatment-free. I don't know if I should go on your show. And I'm like, oh God, my show already <laughs> seems <laughs> treatment-free. I'm like, great. I'm like, but, but that's my opinion, right? And so I... I probably the very first few episodes, I was like, I'm just going to play neutral. And, and, and for the most part, I, I, my thought process is neutral. Yeah. But, um, I would say mine is too, really. And I, yeah. And I mean, well, well, right. And there, there's some people out there that, you know, we're to start talking about like, you know, treat the hive to kill off the mites to, to kind of reset it. Most true treatment free people are like, Oh no, shame on you. You know, but basically I'm like, it's not a bad idea. Right. You know and, but I mean? that's, but that, but that's where <laughs> I think that the chemicals could play a role. Right. Definitely. And they have their, place. um, like that, you got to go back to IPM. They have their place, but we're clearly overly reliant on them. We've missed the foundation right. or have been lazy about right. concentrating and targeting that real resistance. right and and we know beekeepers are not lazy right, right. it's okay. one of the hardest freaking jobs um yeah, I would it's coal mining without the black lung <laughs> right, exactly. it stings and heat exhaustion and bad right <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so it can be not fun um I got a, uh, never mind. I'm not even going to mention it. <laughs> um, I got stung in a place the other day that, that is X rated. <laughs> I, I was like, why do I do this? <laughs> I too have been stung everywhere you can imagine. Uh, but I, I just like, I forget even where I was. What was I talking about? I don't even remember. But yeah, I, I just, I, I, I fear that you know, my curiosity brings me down an avenue that, that I think is the solution, right? Like, and a lot of times we get fed information from quote unquote experts. And I'm not claiming I'm an expert in anything, right? I'm just curious. And that curiosity brings me places that hopefully are the answer. And and, you know, I probably need to work maybe a little bit harder to get some people on here that that have totally polar opposite opinions and not have a hash out, but just get that information out there. Right. And well, we have let people decide. Discussion. You know what I'm saying? Right. Where nobody's getting offended or name right. calling and, you know, going down that path. If you can have an honest right. discussion of two people hashing it out, that's how we figure stuff out. You know what I'm saying? If right. you're just in an echo chamber to where all you hear is treatments are bad, commercial beekeepers are bad, right. like you're wrong, dude. Like get out of right. that. Yeah. And I'm not saying that by any means. And I know you're not either. It's no, just, no. I, yeah. I, I just, yeah. I think it That's is the ultimate path though, because now here, here's the caveat. It is the ultimate host resistance is the ultimate path. But a lot of treatment-free people get really dogmatic about it. It's almost kind of like a 
uh, religion with all of its heavy dogma. And no, well, God. it's the classic example of um, what is it? Perfect is the enemy of the good. You know, yes. it's like, yep. yeah, you can't well, be they, perfect. You know, we need to work not. towards perfection. Right. Or are you even actually selecting? And if you're not, or are you just not doing anything? Because a lot of treatment people are just not doing anything. Well, that's not the right answer either. You know what I mean? Like you want right. to be selecting for something. And, and then if you get, if mother nature gives you something that's been selected and does have host resistance, well, you need to be able to raise queens from it and stuff. And I've had people throw rocks at me because my queens were artificial because I grafted them. I'm like, come on now. I can't shoot royal jelly out my mouth. I can't even build wax. They did that, not me. Right. <laughs> They're not artificial. Well, and then it's acceleration of what is already natural, right? That's like, it. Take you're creating a situation. To, and, and to me, that that's how you get right back to the whole private and private enterprise like our goal is to get to that finish line as quick as possible because we don't have money to burn right you know and so yeah that might be the pure way of doing it but how do you scale that yeah it has to make you're gonna go on every hive and then put slide a cage on a naturally drawn out queen cell no that i mean and maybe get five out of it right exactly it doesn't make sense whereas mine i can pull them out you know i can pick them off one by one, put them in cell protectors, distribute them as cells, emerge them, put them in candy cages, right. next day air right. them, you know, and then people right. have a good start of something, but I don't know. My way yeah. is and, and I mean, for your average beekeeper, you know, it's just at home or even like a small, you know, hobby guy that's, or gal for that matter, that has, you know, 50 hives, that's might be a totally viable way of doing it, but Definitely. you're selling VSH Queens and you can't do it. You got to do it the efficient way. Yep. And everybody, here's the thing too, is everybody's going to do it different. My way is not the only way it kind of, a lot of it depends on what's your goal you know, what's your end goal. If your end goal is just to have 20 colonies and not have to buy honey and have a little bit to sell, well, your path is going to be different than mine that's trying to breed and select for something and offer, you know, concentrated specific genetics. Like, it doesn't mean that right. is wrong. Just right. focus, man. That's all. That's all right. Good. Well, I think we could probably talk for two more hours and yeah. uh, <laughs> which probably would not be good. <laughs> yeah. So I think yeah. that we should save the rest for next time. I agree. I think it was a productive conversation and it was. We'll yeah, I enjoyed the conversation. Um, thank you so much for joining. And, you know, we will certainly stay in touch. And, you know, I'll get your link out there. People going to order from you um, any VSH queens that they like. I'm going to place an order. I know that for sure. Cool. <laughs> get well, some genetics. Uh, left on shipping virgin queens. Like I'll ship next Tuesday, the 31st, because Monday is a holiday. And then I'll be shipping okay. June 6th. I may have some after that, but I'm planning on just making some for myself. So I'll sell if I have any extra and then I'll probably close it down for the year. Cause whenever we start getting closer to July, if we don't get good rain here and it gets hot, they're done. raising. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. So, well, we'll talk offline about it and see what we can good. do. <laughs> sounds great, Mike. Well, thanks for having me All on. Right. I appreciate the conversation. I think it was productive and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. So We'll catch up again soon. Yep. See you next time. Thank you, Mike. Yep. Later. See ya.
Cold sweat, blood in my eyes 